Last week, our study in 1 John 1, verses 5 to 10, I focused on the word fellowship, the word that is kind of used very loosely in Christianity for many years, the word koinonia. And the word fellowship, if you remember, I mentioned that it has a very broad meaning, but very, very, very sweet meaning, very good meaning. It's translated fellowship, it's translated communion. Paul translates it in Philippians 4, it's communicating. He does that also there in uh, Galatians chapter 6 about communicating, about giving of our offerings. The word communicate is expressing our, our appreciation, our thankfulness, our, the giving of our offerings. That's a good Bible word. It's a good Bible word to describe our, the giving of our offerings. We're communicating. And I spoke last week about the requirements of fellowship, the rupture of fellowship, the repentance in fellowship. And then we use that as a sedge way to get into the receiving in fellowship by taking the Lord's table. Now tonight we are taking entire section seven verses for our study. As we get into it, I want to give you some thoughts in, uh, in, this, in this introduction that I hope you'll take some notes on. There's some, there are three key thoughts we're going to find in this passage of Scripture. Thought number one I want you to notice is chapter 2, verse 1, the recurring number of times that John is going to use this phrase, my little children. Now there's breaking, what I call breaking points or identifiers in the scripture that help us to understand a, a profound meaning. And anything we read in scripture is very profound for us. It's the word of God. You find this used in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. In fact, actually, in chapter 2, we find it used five times. It's used a total of ten times, my little children. The second thought I want you to think about tonight is where he makes that phrase again. You'll notice here in verse chapter 2, verse 1, same phrase he uses in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, these things write I unto you. Now, that's a breaking point as we go through 1 John to remind us he gives us a specific reason why he wrote the scriptures. Why the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God gave him that, that, the, the, those words. And he was led by the Spirit of God. And he says, these things write unto you. Now he could physically be with them, but he had to write to them. Now today in our modern society, I've always wondered, if God was to give us his word in today's modern society, uh, well, how would he do that? Would he do it in writing? I think he would. But would he also maybe, maybe have sent the apostle to, uh, to these congregations and, and not only just have written it to them, but he probably would have taken the parchment out and opened it up and, and would have read it to them and preached right out of there to them. I'm not really sure, but I kind of wonder as he thinks about, as we think about this, there's a great deal of importance behind that phrase. These things have I written unto you. These things write I unto you. There's a third phrase there, a third thought, and that's, our, that's, our, that's kind of what we're going to revolve our, our study in tonight. The topical emphasis this evening, you start with verse, verse, seven, uh, verse 6 or 7, is the word sin. The word sin is found repeatedly from chapter 1, verse 7, through chapter 2, verse 2. He wants our attention. There's an entire um, in systematic theology, there's an entire section devoted to what we call the doctrine of hammer theology, the doctrine of sin. Now, if you study this the way the Holy Spirit inspired the writers, it changes your life. You'll be kind of like Isaiah did. You'll have an Isaiah chapter 6 moment where you'll realize that you're a man undone with unclean lips and you'll say, Lord, woe is unto me. You cannot study the subject of sin and the doctrine of sin without realizing how sinful we are. We don't want it to become head knowledge. We want it to be something that transforms our life. Now, as we get into this, I want you to understand, I want to give you some words because we're going to, we're going to study this through this, this, study, this, this, this study through 1 John and then 2 John, 3 John. The word for sin that we find in the Bible is the word hamartia. The word hamartia basically means to miss the mark. More often than not, when you find the word sin, it means basically to miss the mark. You might think of a target shooting, an archer with an arrow, a bow and arrow. He aims at the bullseye, but he misses the mark. That's the idea of coming short of the glory, coming short of where you need to be. And I think that's a good definition. Sin means we miss the mark. We're not on target with the Word of God. 
We're not targeted with what God says. I mean, that's how we have to look at it. That sin, that's what sin means. We, we've missed the mark. If you miss the mark, you come short. And if you come short, you, you really, you're in trouble. And you find that the word sin that's, re, that's used recurrently here has the idea of missing the mark. But there's another word that's used, and I want you to go to chapter 3 with me. So we can understand the context of everything unraveling here. A third word that we don't use so much, but we, we need to focus on tonight, beginning with verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4, is the word anomia. In chapter 3, verse 4, John said this. Listen very carefully. If you have your scriptures, don't please read it. Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law. Now watch this. John is giving a very amplified definition of sin right there. Whosoever hemarchia misses the mark, also anomias transgresses or breaks the law. Now that's pretty powerful. God is saying there, and let me finish the, the, the verse. He says, whosoever committed sin transgresses all the law. For sin, now notice the definition. This is God defining sin to us. Hamartia, for sin, hamartia is the transgression of law. Sin, hamartia is anomia. Literally means you're a lawbreaker. You've broken the law. The word transgression could mean that. It means you've crossed the forbidden line. You've broken the law. Sometimes the word anomia is also translated in the English to the word iniquity. Breaking the law, there's a word our students of old used that I think is a very important word we use. They didn't use breaking the law. They used the noun to define the person who broke the law. The noun was this, you are lawless. You are lawless. And the context that John is writing this is to believers. Remember that. He's not writing to unbelievers. Be careful if you are studying the Word of God and you feel inclined, you need to pick up a commentary. And I hope that you'll consult with me before you pick up a commentary. That there are commentators today, contemporary commentators, that will tell you that where you find this, he's not talking about believers. He's talking about unbelievers. We're going to refute that in a minute. Now, when Paul wrote, when, when John wrote 1 John, the heresy of Gnosticism had made its way into all of the local churches. It was like a cancer. It had a pervasive impact on fundamental doctrine of Scripture, foremost of which the deity of Jesus Christ and sin. Now, when John wrote 1 John 3, 4, notice he continued, look, look at verse 5. He says, And you know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth them sinneth not, whosoever sinneth, sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. The Gnostics were arguing and telling the churches, and this was present, which is why John had to write to them. They made, they made a segregation of the flesh and the spirit. And they said this, they said, things done in the body with your flesh were inconsequential. Because the flesh is evil and all matter is evil and flesh is evil, so therefore it didn't matter that you committed sins of the flesh. And I'm talking about the actual sins of the flesh, like adultery, fornication. They said it's inconsequential, and so therefore, since the, since the flesh cannot be redeemed, and that's what the Gnostics were teaching, since the flesh cannot be redeemed, that's when you read through First John, those wonderful words like propitiation for our sins become very, very important to us. They're saying that since the flesh was evil anyway, it, did not, it could not be redeemed. It didn't matter that you sinned in the flesh. It would really matter if you sinned in the Spirit. In Gnosticism, you study the historical aspect of it. Gnosticism led those who fell into its doctrinal and heretical teaching become licentious in their living. Because if my pastor got up and said this, if my pastor got up and said this, he said, Brother Fong, it doesn't matter if you sit in the flesh. It's inconsequential. Because the flesh is evil anyway. 
What really matters is if you sin in the Spirit because, because Satan sin in the Spirit. But I remind you this, morning, this evening, my brother and sister Christ, you cannot separate the flesh and the Spirit when it comes to sin. Because you know what? The, the, when you think about sin, think about lust, the definition of sin that we have in James chapter 1. And James chapter 1 says it, that, that when, when a man lusts in his heart, he's enticed, and when he's enticed, it leads to sin. It begins in your mind. Every sin begins in your mind. You see, you hear, you feel, and it beds itself in your mind. And that mind leads to emotion, and that motion leads to sin. These Gnostics were playing a semantic game with the words hamartia and the word anomia. They said hamartia identified the transgressions of the moral law, the sins of the flesh, so therefore gluttony and drunkenness and immorality. They said, well, that's of the flesh. That's inconsequential. And so my pastor told me that. I was living that day. That would basically mean, well, I'm struggling with drunkenness, but they say it's not a big deal. I'm struggling with lust, but my pastor's telling me it's not a big deal because he said it's inconsequential. That's wrong. That's wrong teaching. That's not biblical. Amen. So Marcia, they took the word sin, which means missing the mark. And they said that defines sins of the flesh. They took anomia, which means lawless, which also can lead to talking about the Antichrist, who's the lawless one. And they categorized sins of the spirit with anomia. They said those are the sins that Satan committed. Those are the ones that God is most concerned with, like pride and rebellion and vanity and greed. And here's what they taught. Now, I'm giving you the introduction. You understand where we're going to go. They taught that if you did hamartia, God looked the other way. And God was only concerned if you did anomia, sins of the spirit. That's wrong. That is heresy. Today we find that represented, you'll see this in a, when I get down to it, you find that represented in the same kind of concept and thought through a movement called the hyper-grace or radical grace movement right now. I'm not going to give you all the definitions, but I'll give you some thoughts here. If you go to James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, and J- Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 24, you cannot separate the, mo- the flesh and the spirit. In fact, just to be honest with you, you read Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, he says, having therefore cleansed ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and of the spirit. Can't separate the two. It does not matter to God if the sin is in the flesh or the sin is spirit. It doesn't separate you. It's still sin before God. It's still sin before a holy God. If God says don't do anything with it, God says it's sin, it's sin, amen? But what they did was they started to categorize sins and lessen sins and, and they got these people who are living in gross sins not to really recognize the importance of having a right relationship with God and being clean. Listen, brother and sister Christ, it's vitally important this day and age where there's hyper grace and radical grace teaching and where, where grace is taken to extreme. God never meant it. By the way, you can understand what grace is all about because the Bible says in Titus chapter 2 that the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying uh, ungodly lust that we should live Soberly, righteously, godly before God in His present world. I mean, God, and over there in Titus chapter 2, God defines what grace is. God sets boundaries around it. God, well, through grace. Grace doesn't allow us to sin, give us a license to sin and do whatever we want. That's not, what, that's not what grace is about. And you need to be very careful. Just like churches out there, you have to be careful. Most churches have the name grace at the beginning. The first question you have to ask, was well, this a church that tends to have Reformed theology? I mean, my radar, my, my, red, the radar, my radar screen, the red flags go up my radar screen. That you say you're a grace baptist. My first question is, well, where do you stand on Reformed theology? Second thing I'll look at is that all the books out there that talk about grace walk and things like that. I, I mean, I got red flags that are going up. Okay, are you, are you advocating hyper grace? Are you advocating radical grace? And by the way, you say, well, it doesn't bother me. I know all about that. It may not bother you, but listen, that's what people are picking up and reading today. You have to understand, outside of Heritage Baptist Church, there are millions of other Christians looking for literature. They're not spending time in the Word of God. They want to find out what the favorite author of the day is, so they're reading him, and they get all caught up with these things. Listen, they haven't learned to discern the Word of God. Listen, the Bible tells us, a study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be shamed, rightly divining the Word of truth. So they were playing games with the words, Hamartia and Anomia. 
And as we look at 1 John, John is setting the tone of understanding we must define sin and see sin as a holy and righteous God sees sin. Pure and simple as that. If we could see our sin as God sees our sin, listen, we would experience revival every day. We would experience revival every moment. We'd experience revival in our prayer time. If we could just see our sin the way God sees sin, we could experience and see our sin as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. We would understand more about the holiness of God that we don't understand right now. I want you to see several things about our passage of Scripture tonight as we consider sin, this, this matter of any man's sin. Notice, number one, we see the absolute concerning sin. The absolute, excuse me. In chapter 1, verse 5, it says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, as we look at sin, we cannot start with sin. We must start with God. Absolute. God is light. That means God is holy. God is all truth. God is pure. He's the Father in lights in whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There's no changing about the fact. God is not a light that where the switch goes on and off. He is light all the time. He's the light that lights up the new heaven and the new earth. He's light all the time. He's holy all the time. He's pure all the time. Before John got into talking about sin, he got into talking about God and that God is absolute. Listen, if we would spend more time talking about God and God in His presence, listen, we would hate sin and we would shun sin because why? We're growing in love towards our God and our Savior. Savior. God's essence is light. He's absolute light. God's effulgence is light. He is the brightness and the glory of heaven. God's essential is light. He gives light to all that are in darkness. And I love what it says here in chapter 1, verse 5 in this absolute. There is absolutely no darkness in God at all. Now, thank God we've got lights on here in the Heritage Center. As soon as this service is done, we're going to wind up things and sanitize things. We're going to turn off the lights and it's going to be pretty dark in here. But thank God, God is light all the time. He's holy all the time. There's no darkness in Him. He always has been light. That's His glory and magnificence. Listen, without light, we are without God. And without God, we are without light. Amen? We see the absolute. But notice number two tonight. Notice the abomination. Chapter 1, verse 6. We say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness. We lie and do not the truth. Now, here in, here in chapter 1, verse 6, He defines sin as walking in darkness. Beginning in verse 6, all the way to chapter 2, verse 2, He makes reference to sin. Remember, Gnostic teaching watered down sin. said, Amartya, sins of Amartya, God looked the other way. Sins of Anomia was what God was more concerned with. I remind you this evening before a holy and righteous God, sin is an abomination before God. Sin is what sent Jesus, why God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. God hates sin. These six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination before him. The theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. We get up there to chapter 16, 17, 18. We read about all the things that are an abomination before God. And by the way, they were not just an abomination then. They're still an abomination now. Amen. The word of God hasn't changed. Politicians and those who are trying to take advantage of other special classes or groups may want to re redefine the words. But I'm going to tell you, the word of God has not changed. So what is sin if it's an abomination? Well, notice chapter, one, chapter 3, verse 4, is disobedience. Whosoever committed sin, and by the way, that's, that's a free choice. That's a free choice. You sin out of your own volition. Let no man say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted, neither tempted he any man. Don't say God caused you to do that. Don't even blame the devil for that. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. All sin is disobedience. 1 John 3, 4, as we said earlier, sin is lawlessness. Sin is darkness. We look at verse, chapter 1, verse 6. What we, 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 we see it says, if we, if we say we have fellowship and walk in darkness, that means we're walking the opposite way. And you know, it's kind of interesting. We look at the word darkness. I think of two characters in the Bible. 
Remember the story there of Saul, King Saul there in 1 Samuel? He went to the witch at Endor, remember that? He asked her because God would not answer his prayer. He was so far from God. God had already exposed him in 1 Samuel 15 of his disobedience, his rebellion, but he was so far from God, he went to a witch, of all things, to bring back up Samuel. He was scared to death what he saw and what he heard. His men realized he hadn't eaten for a little bit, and they needed to get him to eat to kind of settle him down. They finally got him to eat. And the Bible says this at the end of that chapter. I think it's chapter 28. It says that Saul went out into the night. We go over to the New Testament and read about Judas Iscariot when Jesus told him, you're the one that's going to betray me. And there before the rest of the men took the Lord's table, Judas made his way out. And the Bible says this specifically, I think it's in John chapter 13. It says that Judas went out into the night. They're walking in darkness. When we sin, we're stealthy in our sin. When we sin, we don't want other people to know. When we sin, we want to do it as completely secretly as possible. We are in darkness. And by the way, when we're born in this world, the Bible says we're children of darkness. When we're in darkness, we stumble. When we're in darkness, we're lost. When we're in darkness, we bump into things. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, and we... Say we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness. We lie and do not the truth. Sin is disobedience. Sin is darkness. Sin is deceitful. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. We say we have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. I didn't go there. We say we have no sin. Look with Adam and Eve. It's the first thing they did. The glory that shielded their bodies was removed. They went from innocence to having realized they had a conscience. They looked at each other and said, we're naked, and shame came upon them. There ought to be shame when you sin. Amen? First thing they did, they covered themselves up with leaves. They tried to cover up. Adam, where are you? We say we have no sin. We deceive ourselves. Think about King Saul and Agag. Oh yeah, Samuel, I did what the Lord told me to do. I slayed his enemies. Samuel said, wait a minute. It's the bleeding of the sheep. The lowing of the cows that I hear. You didn't kill them. Oh, but I did, but I did what God told me. Or think about David and Bathsheba. Word picked up of David's scandal and all that David did. What an embarrassing situation. But David was living in denial. He was deceiving himself. He thought that he got away with it. And Bathsheba's pregnant and she's, she's barren. She's, she's, she's great with child. And he thought he could get away with it until the day came that Nathan the prophet came and he gave him a parable that got him incited and got him incensed and very angry. He says, just as that man did that little lamb, so should be to him. And then Nathan looked at him, pointed his bony finger and he says, Thou art the man. Ever think about this? The sins of other people we get most angry about are probably because those are the sins in our life. Think about Ananias and Sapphira as a time of great giving. Grace giving was in the church in those early days, and they were trying to help one another, and they're trying to they're just trying to juggle all these things to try to help be a blessing to people. And Ananias and Sapphira saw this as an opportunity to get their name somewhere, and so they sold a piece of property, but their intent was to keep the profit and only put a little bit there. But Peter saw through all that, not sure how he did that, but the Holy Spirit told him, and he told him specifically, Why have ye lied to the Holy Spirit of God? Listen, if we say we have we have we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, the Bible says, and the truth is not. Not in us. That's one bad thing to lie to people. But to be at a place in our life we lie to ourselves and we're not bothered by that, that's, that's pretty bad. Sin is deceitful. Look at chapter 1, verse 6 and 10. Verse 10 first. Sin is darkness. Sin is deceitful. Sin is disobedience. But notice verse 10. Sin is distortion. Distortion. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Would you dare to call God a liar? 
Yet we do so, according to verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And it's very evident, if, we, the sin is, if, if our sin is pointing us out, and we're saying we haven't done it, you know what, what God's really saying? It doesn't matter how much you quote the Bible, it doesn't matter how much you think you know the Bible, the truth of the matter is, His Word is not abiding in you. Wow. God's calling us out. Romans 3, 4, the Bible says, Let God be true, and every man a liar. When 1 John 1, 10 is saying, we're telling God He's wrong and we're right. They're saying this evening, we see the abomination. These agnostics were not acknowledging their sin. They were playing with semantics. They were calling Amartya's sins one thing and Anomia's sins another thing. And so this had permeated the church there that, that at Ephesus that John was writing to. And these believers, just, they, they were lacking conscience about their sin. They were not seeing their sin as God did. And he wanted them to understand, you cannot separate the two. Sin is sin before God. But he wanted them to realize, I don't want you to be feeling down and out. And I don't want you to feel like that you're stuck in your sin. I don't want you feeling like God wants you to be a failure. He said, there's a way out of this. And there's a, that way he gives us in First John. 1 9. Notice 1 John 1 9. He gives us the acknowledgement. If we confess our sins, there's only one proper response when God calls out sin. We must confess our sins. Leading up to verse 9, he says, No sin. All sin. And John throws himself into the pool here. He says if we confess our sins. He says, I'm not pointing my finger to you. He says, I'm in the mix here too. Our sins. There are no little sins with God. Amen? All sins are the same with God. Sins of the Spirit, sins of the flesh. We said this last week. The word confession literally means this. Agreeing with God with what he says about our sin. Alan, that's what you've done. Lord, I agree with you. You're exactly right. I don't hide from it. I make no excuses. Your word is spot on. You're spot on, Lord. It's conceding with God that we are guilty as charged. Please don't take this, especially if you're watching my live stream right now. Please don't take this wrong. I believe when a person progressively is moving away from the church and progressively has moved away from God's word, they have no semblance of a prayer life. It all begins right here. Where they're not agreeing with God about their sin. Pastors, and we have a mission here tonight. Missionaries are so guilty of that too. We can be so busy burning up or grieving, I should say, the sins of our country. And by the way, our country has a lot of sin, amen? And Christians who battle with sin in their life, they have no victory over it. We have a tendency to forget about us. And John said, if we confess our sins, we agree with God. We concede that we are guilty as charged. I want you to notice something here in verse 9. Confession of our sin is an integral aspect of or part, I could say, aspect of salvation. Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thy heart that God has raised from the dead. Now some would call this, they define this as forensic confession. To be saved, you've got to confess with your mouth. You can't get away from that. God, I agree with you. I am a sinner who needs to be saved. Brother Portillo, I'm in the place right now, when I, when I give the gospel to people, I ask them this, I say, you can see the Holy Spirit convicting, I ask them this, I say, now, are you going to really mean business with God? Will you tell God 
that you know you're a terrible sinner. By the way, we're all terrible sinners, amen? We're so terrible, Jesus had to die for all of our sins, amen? It's an integral part of getting saved. But confession doesn't stop there. Do you hear what I said? Confession doesn't stop there. Listen, we're going to go on with the daily walk with God, and we're going to find along the way, we're going to get our hands dirty and our feet dirty, and we're going to get our lives soiled, we're going to defile ourselves, and we've got to get this place where we realize confession is an automatic part of the Christian living. Forensic confession is when we get saved. Familial confession is realizing that there is confession is a part of everyday life. We realize that we should be so conscious in our life that we're moved to confessing that sin before God. Hyper Grace says that 1 John 1, 9 only happens at conversion. They say that the we, which very clearly speaking about believers, they say the we is referring to unbelievers. They disregard we, they disregard our, they disregard little children in chapter 2, verse 1. They're, they're, they're totally disregarding, this is written to believers. This is what they teach. That we cannot be forgiven for that which Christ has already forgiven us for. Now the word forgive is a wonderful word in, this, in, in, in Scripture. The word forgive is the Greek word ephemi. Sometimes the word ephemi is also translated uh, uh, put asunder where we get our word divorce from. The word ephemi is applies to forgiveness means literally to send away. It has the idea of the scapegoat back there on the Day of Atonement as the priest, the high priest took two goats, one that he slew on the altar with the shed blood and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat and the other one was the goat he took onto the wilderness and he let it go and he sent it away. It means to send it away. Forgiveness literally means this. If you're struggling with forgiveness, if God forgives your life, I want to give you encouragement tonight. God says in, his, in the word forgiveness that when he forgives us, he sends it away. Praise God. He sends it away. But they're saying you cannot be forgiven for that which Christ has already forgiven you. In other words, they're saying once you are saved, you're forgiven. You don't need to confess your sins anymore. They tell you you can't be out of fellowship with God. Here's what they tell you. Here's this. Steve McVeigh, the one I was telling you about, that wrote the book, 52 Lies That You Hear in Church Every Sunday. This is what he said. He says you cannot do anything to be out of fellowship with God. Well, that's totally contradictory everything here in 1 John 1. Can you imagine how many lives, spiritual lives, are being damaged by that book that's in circulation that I think was published by Harvest House? It says 52 lies that you hear every Sunday. One of them is confessing your sins to God. Do you realize how many Christians are not living a victorious Christian life? They're living in a delusion. They're thinking that I can go ahead and do my sins in the flesh. That's, that's the teaching of radical hyper grace right now. You say, well, pastor, we don't believe that. No, we don't believe it, but... If I was to drop dead today, you don't call the right pastor. You might have somebody coming here that's reading the wrong books, and he might promote that because these guys work in such a subtle way. You say, well, don't our deacons know the Word of God? Yeah, they know the Word of God, but these guys are so subtle. They start working through grace. They start building it up and working away. You just read all their grace, their, their grace books. You start realizing they're very subtle about what they want to do. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. Joseph Prince said this, the bottom line is that the Holy Ghost never convicts you of your sins. He never comes to point out our faults. That's wrong. That totally contradicts John chapter 16. The Spirit of God reproves the sin, righteousness, and judgment. The sin because they believe not on me. Judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And Joseph Prince and Steve McVeigh, these guys have these mega churches running the thousands of people. And let me tell you something tonight. It's the goal is not the growth. The goal is God. Amen. That doesn't mean we're not after growth. 
That doesn't mean we shouldn't be growing. The Bible emphasizes growth all through the book of Acts. We need to be a book of Acts church. Someone just asked me to preach a message, which I just did for a, a, a missions conference that's overseas, and I'll be preaching the same message for a chapel for one of our missionaries who's got a thriving ministry throughout India. He's got 150, 200 churches they've started, and many, many men, hundreds of men they've trained to the ministry. And my message that I was told, asked to preach on is the new norm. Let me tell you something. There's no such thing as the new norm. There's a biblical norm. Joseph Prince, if you ever listen, man, he's a suave, he's a suave performer on the stage. My wife and I called on a family a few years ago, probably three years ago, maybe two even years ago. Very cordial family. First, the first one to greet me was a big, white, shaggy dog. Amen, you know? Dog was very friendly, got hair all over my clothing. It's okay, I'm not allergic to dog hair anyway, amen? Finally, put the dog away, we sat down. Television's on. Husband is watching Joseph Prince. I think he's an Australian preacher. He's watching, or a Singaporean preacher. He's watching Joseph Prince go by. And man, I had red flags going up there. And I'm trying to, we're trying to focus on the wife and trying to lead her to Christ. And finally I said, sir, I know you really like your program. Could you please turn that off? I've got to tell you something more important than Joseph Prince. Amen. He says that the Holy Ghost doesn't convict you of your sins. Now, you know, if I'm somebody that's living in sin, that really appeases my flesh. Amen? And these Baptist preachers come up and preach and say we sin. Listen, you guys aren't in tune with it. Contemporary theology says that we have no sin. Let me tell you, contemporary theology conflicts with biblical theology. Let me say some things about these guys. First John is written to believers. 1 John 1, 6 says, if we, if we say we have fellowship with God, we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Jesus taught in Matthew 6, 12, we had part of our praying. He said, the pattern for praying, he says, Father, forgive us our debts. Father, forgive us. Our We're to pray for forgiveness of sins. Thank God we don't have to go through an earthly priest. Thank God we go through the high priest, the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ himself. Amen. And beloved, I want to tell you, the Holy Ghost does convict of sin. Notice 1 John 1, 9, it's an acknowledgement. We confess our sins to him, and aren't you glad about this? Even it's repeated sins. Even if we feel like a failure in our sin. Even it's a sin that we fail with, and sometimes we deal with people that are just struggling with sin. Hey, you know what's an encouragement in 1 John 1, 9? It tells about the mercies of God. Listen, he is faithful, amen? And he's just. To send away or forgive our sins. I'm preaching to you tonight. You're going through some insecurities because you feel like God can't forgive me of this. Let me tell you, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins. And not only to forgive us, but he, he adds to that and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How does he do the cleansing? Look at 1 John 1, 7. The cleansing is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That efficacious blood just keeps on cleansing, keeps on cleansing, keeps on cleansing. 1 John 1, 7 says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, cleanses us from all sin. Praise God. All sin. Not hamartia or just anomia. All sin, my friend. So we see the absolute is God. We see the abomination of sin. We see the acknowledgement, confession of our sin. But notice the admonition in chapter 2, verse 1. In the admonition, notice chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. Now he called them little children. Why did he repeatedly call them little children? Because their faith was stunted. They were stunted. They had not progressed. They had not matured. They were temperamental. Listen, he called them little children because they had not progressed. They were insecure and unstable in all their ways. They were like a double-minded man. They were spiritually immature in their thinking. They're kind of like the little child that got his hand caught, put his hand in a cookie jar. And mommy said, don't do it. And he got caught. And he says, I didn't steal the cookie from the cookie jar, but his hand was in it. Or if the, the chocolate chip was spread all over his face. I wonder sometimes that we behave like little children when God calls us out. I didn't do it. God, you're wrong. We say we have no sin. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. And the second thing he does, he reinforces the purpose of 1 John. He says, these things write unto you. What was he writing about? Well, the first 12 verses here, he's writing about the problem of sin. Because there were false teachers that had gotten to the church and were watering down sin. And they were doing a version of hyper-grace theology to these people there. 
But notice he said this in the admonition. My little children, these things around you. And he summed it up this way. Here's the admonition. That you sin not. That you sin not. Full words. What's God's will for my life? That you sin not. How can I be happy in Jesus? That you sin not. How can I know the will of God for my life? That you sin not. That you sin not. Don't walk in darkness. Don't lie. That you sin not. He's saying, don't li- stop living a life of sin. In the preceding verses, he's telling us, stop covering up our sin. He's not saying we will be sinless. But he does define in 1 John 5, 16, all unrighteousness is sin. So the admonition we're receiving is this, is this, this battle we go through every day, that you sin not. We must hate our sin as God hates our sin. We must deal with sin in our life according to God's word. He says these things run into that you sin not. Hey, listen, I love what, what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verses 20, 22, and I find myself gravitating to that almost every single morning. He says this, but in, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to dishonor, some to, dis, some to honor, some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. He says, flee also youthful lust, and after righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call the Lord out of a pure heart. How can we call to God out of a pure heart? Many years ago, when I was, I think, a senior in college, in Secular College, Brother Dwight Tomlinson, who's the founder of Barnabas 1040, pastored for many years here in California, both here up in Northern and Southern California. We had him as a camp speaker. His closing message, I remember there's just maybe about 20 of us as college students who were there. We had a college, Brother Burn, we had a college group at that time, then ran about 40 or 50 students, and it was a little disappointing. I felt like, how come we don't have more kids that came? But we had about 20 that came for that. And I remember that very last message he preached so profound. Brother Thomas at that time, maybe he was only 24, 25 years of age, he said, listen, I can preach with a dirty heart, and I can go sewing with a dirty heart. And he says, I can, I can counsel with a dirty heart, and I can think I have fellowship with my wife with a dirty heart. But he says, there's one thing I've learned as a preacher. He says, I cannot pray with a dirty heart. These things run unto you that you sin not. I mean, God just makes a very definitive statement just that you sin not. We struggle with sin every day of our life. Sins of speech, sins of the spirit, sins of motion. There's not one thing to the other. We have a lot of pressure points that move on us. God says we must purge ourselves from these. The admonition that you sin, not that you're going to be sinless. With God's help, you're striving not to live in sin. You say, Pastor, that sounds really good. I'm, I'm with you. I understand what sin is. Pastor, I'm with you. I understand we need to confess our sins. And, God, and Pastor, I, I'm excited about the fact that I'm just renewed in my faith that Jesus Christ is faithful and just. God is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all around. I love that. That is great. But I want to tell you something. You're telling me that, that, that God says here in the admonition that I'm supposed to sin out. Now, how am I going to do that? Here's how he finishes off. Notice our advantage in verses 1 and 2. And if any man sin, now he says, I, I'm telling you not to sin, sin not, but I want you to know you're going to sin. If any man sins, we're going to sin. It might be a Hamarsha sin. It might be an Anomia sin. As, as the Gnostics defined, it didn't really matter. He wanted to give them a word of encouragement. He says, yes, you'll sin. If any man sin, he said, but we may sin, but thank God we have Jesus. Amen. We may sin, but we have Jesus. If any man sin, listen, we have an advocate with the Father, and he wanted to emphasize this, Jesus Christ the righteous. Listen, he's Jehovah Sidniku, Sidniku, the Lord our righteousness. He's Jesus who's never sinned. He's Jesus who's always holy. He's Jesus who's the light of the world. He's Jesus who's light, and there is no darkness at all. Jesus and God are one and the same. He says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Notice he is our advocate. Jesus is the advocate between God and man. The word advocate is a very wonderful word. It's the very same word that gives us the word comforter. Parakaleo. Parakletus. 
An advocate is someone who stands with you. An advocate is someone who stands for you. The advocate is the one through his, through his Jesus Christ is our advocate. Listen, he argues our case before God. The devil comes before God and says, see, Alan Fong is a messed up sinner. Look at him. He said those things and he did those things. He's such a messed up sinner. But Jesus, as he sits at the right hand of God, he looks at God, our father, and says, yes, father, I realize that Alan Fong is messed up. But father, I want you to see the nail prints in my hand. And I want you to see the nail prints in my feet and the, in my side. I want to remind you of the eternal blood of Christ that was shed. He says, I remind you that when that blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat according to 1 John 1 7 the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses from all sin Jesus advocates on your behalf and my behalf as our great intercessor with the father oh we ought to be thankful today that Jesus is not only praying for us he's advocating for us he's advocating for our forgiveness he's advocating for our cleansing he's advocating for another for a second start and a third start and a fourth start he advocates for he stands with us we may feel guilty we may feel the pressure and we may feel even through a revival service that is coming up this coming Sunday with brother Sam Davis God's going to point out some things in our life and we're going to feel like, man, God really spoke to me about that and you're going to feel just so under conviction. Listen, Jesus is our advocate, the Father. We don't have to leave guilty. We can leave victorious because God is in control. He's not Jesus Christ the sinner. He's Jesus Christ the righteous. He's not only our advocate. Notice in verse 2, his appeasement. How does he do that? He's the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. When churches started shifting in the late 80s, quickly, actually in the late 70s, of the usage of the King James Version of the Bible, they went to the NASB, and then, like wildfire, the NIV spread. And subtle teachers would pick on 1 John 2, 2 and 1 John 4, 10 because the word propitiation was found there. And this is what they would say. One of the reasons why we need a more simpler version of the Bible to understand is because people don't understand the word propitiation. Well, you know what? That's why you have a dictionary. Amen? I want to tell you that because of the word propitiation, I'm going to continue with the King James Version of the Bible. Because the word propitiation is a rich word. It's a powerful word. It explains this. It has the meaning of a priest making an expiatory sacrifice for sin. You know what this means, basically? God, Jesus Christ, is the appeasement of our sins. He satisfied all the righteous demands of God when he died on the cross for our sins, when he shed his blood for us. It basically means he satisfied it in full. As I said this morning, when he did that in full, he left a zero balance for every sinner. And why can Jesus Christ bear advocate? Because he's the propitiation for our sins. When he died for our sins, it wasn't just for the past. It wasn't just for the present. It's also for the future. Jesus Christ paid for our sin debt in full. And here's the most wonderful thing. John knew that later on, God knew later on, as he gave this to, 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 to the more sure word of prophecy, John, he knew that later on people would kind of seize upon that. So he says, I just want you to understand, he's not just a propitiation for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And that refutes every Reformed theology, Calvinistic teaching that's out there. That verse right there diffuses, diffuses limited atonement. It diffuses unconditional election. diffuses all of those wrong teachings about Reformed theology. Jesus Christ is the propitiation. He's the payment price for the sins of the entire world, if you would, for you and I this morning. That's why Jesus can do that. We don't end on the note, well, I've got my sin and I'm on, a, I'm on a guilt trip. We don't end on the note that I'm on a guilt trip because of sin. We end on the note that we are victorious in Jesus Christ. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. What is that victory? Jesus Christ is our advocate, the Father. Day in and day out, he's advocating for you and I. He's standing with and standing for us. And by his uh, propitiation for our sins, he stands before a holy Father in heaven, shows the nail prints in his hands and his feet and in his side. He says, listen, you, you can forgive him, Father. You can forgive him. You can send the sins away. You can cleanse because of what I did for him on the cross. A lady, I'm going to close with this, a lady 
received a notice that she was supposed to appear in the court of law. She had broken the law. It was not a minor infraction. It was a very major, major breaking of the law. The evidence was compellingly against her. When she received her summons, she read it and she said, Ben, I, I better get a lawyer. Started checking around and she heard about a very, very competent, well-versed lawyer who could argue on her behalf and stand with her in trial. But she was honestly just anxious and a little bit unnerved by the situation. And she took this summons and instead of immediately calling this lawyer that she had the reference from, she just kind of put it on the side of her table and just kind of ignored it. She had several weeks before she had to make this appearance and she, didn't, she knew that she had to get her case prepared and she needed to review this, but she just kind of put it on the side and ignored it. And as each day came, went by, it, came, it, came, it brought her closer and closer to that trial date. Finally, one week, one week before, actually three days before the trial, three days before the trial, she said, I better contact this lawyer. She contacted him. He said, oh, ma'am, I'm glad to hear from you. And she explained her situation. He said, ma'am, he says, I have to tell you this. If you had contacted me two days before, or excuse me, a week before, I would have gladly accepted this case to be your advocate. But because you waited so long from the time you received the summons to right now, during that course of time, unbeknownst to you, I was appointed a judge now, and I'm no longer an advocate for, for your rights. I am now a judge. And instead of being your advocate, I will be your judge at this trial. And I remind you tonight that if you're not saved, Jesus Christ is the advocate for every sinner. But if you put off and put off receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior, He will one day not be your advocate. He will one day be your judge of the great white throne judgment. Brother and sister in Christ, I want to encourage you tonight to live victoriously in Jesus. He that covers his sin shall not prosper. But who shall confess and forsake of the sin shall have mercy. God doesn't classify sins as hamartias and anomias. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7.1, we must come before a holy God to cleanse us from all sins of the flesh and of the spirit. May God help us tonight have a conscience void of offense before God and before man. Be touched in our heart. Perhaps the Holy Spirit brought some sins to our mind. And we've been finding the Holy Spirit perhaps the last 45 minutes and saying, well, Lord, I didn't do that. But the Bible says if, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, you're right with God. And if you're not saved tonight, Jesus wants to save you tonight. He's faithful and just to forgive your sins.